Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Welcome, everyone, to the Chasing Giants podcast, episode 204. And, Don, this episode is going to be recorded in a couple days after, or it's being broadcasted a couple days after we record because you're going to sunny Florida uh, as the temperatures have plummeted this week. And based on my cell camera pictures from Illinois, you got a little bit of snow on the ground. We've got just a little here, not too much. The big news is the temperature. Um, It's been below zero the last several nights in single digits during the day. Uh, we got just a little bit of a warm-up midweek, but uh, here at the end of the week, it's it's back down. Uh, another cold front came through for a couple days. So, um, I for, saw a video of you mowing down your corn. So talk talk I, a little bit about that, um, and then we're gonna we're gonna explain what's gonna happen in this podcast tonight. This episode's gonna be maybe the most watched episode on YouTube that we've ever done after we tell everybody what's about to happen. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I've been waiting for the ground to freeze so I can mow my corn. Um, I, I don't like to do it when the ground's froze so that when I run over those ears of corn, I don't push them down into the mud. They stay up on top of the ground and, and I mow it with a skid loader with the mower on the front of the skid loader. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I did that a couple of days ago and posted a picture of me mowing, but that afternoon, you know, hunting season's over, but I still went out and sit in a blind that afternoon, I took my rifle in case a coyote happened by, and I took my video camera for the deer. And, man, they came out that afternoon. I got in the blind like 2 in the afternoon, 3 hours before dark, and I wasn't there 5 minutes, and the deer were showing up. And by the end of the evening, I'd seen over 50 deer, um, somewhere between 16 to 20 different bucks, and they were all over that Nutri-Crave corn. Yeah, so not only uh, providing a food source in one of the most stressful times we've had this year, uh, I believe last year, right around Christmas, we had plummeting temperatures and, you know, the deer piled Mm -hmm. in then, the deer piling in now, because, you know, temperatures, I believe, up there are, what, anywhere around zero to 10 degrees? Yeah, the other morning I got up and uh, I forget where I went. Oh, I, I went to take my daughter to chemo. Um, treat her chemo treatment on Monday, and it was eight below zero when I left home that morning. I'm glad you got that truck in a garage now with that new house. That's uh, that's coming in handy, isn't it? It makes it nice. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we got planned tonight. We have never done this on the podcast, and I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody what we're going to do. We're going to leave a bunch of time in the middle of our questions because you and I went on to Google Images and picked up all different pictures randomly. We don't know the people. We don't know where they came from. But we took Google Image pictures of people who have hinge-cutted, and we're going to put that up on the screen so the folks that are watching on YouTube can actually see different pictures of hinge-cutting And you're going to kind of analyze the picture and give your thoughts about it. Maybe some comments will be about the tree species they chose. Maybe some of it's the technique. Maybe something's about how many trees they did or peripheral stuff that we can see in the picture. So if you're listening on a podcast audio platform and you're curious about this, switch over to the YouTube platform so you'll be able to see this after the second question. And we're going to leave a lot of time for this because I think that we're going to we're going to need it. Uh, I can see a couple of these pictures where we're going to have an infamous Don rant. I can just feel it coming on tonight. But uh, before we do that, we're going to make some announcements in, in case people didn't do it. So be respectful of that. You can fast forward when we get to the announcements of his appearances. But before we go any further, I'm going to play a video that you posted on Wednesday that has gotten crazy amounts of engagements and comments as it relates to a trail camera. So we're going to cut away and I'm going to play this video and then you're going to explain yourself a little bit because 
you might when we're trying to compress stuff into a 30 second video sometimes we can't elaborate the way we want and the way things interpret but i, I think it's funny um but yeah let's, let's play that right now and then we'll come back and talk about it just a little bit All right, Don, so the words that you use was, uh, we're coming out with this soon. Talk a little bit about, uh, you can't speak details of who this is and where you were at, but talk a little bit about what the situation is. Well, I was, uh, um, <laughs> I was doing some, I gotta be careful how I word this. Um, yeah. I, I am not involved in this new trail camera company, but there is a company working on a new trail camera and i can i think we can say that they're friends of ours that are in another business and just leave it at that right so it, it's not going to be a real world camera it's not going to be a chasing giants camera i've got neither one of us have any ownership in the company whatsoever but these folks i guess respect my opinion and use of trail cameras and I'm kind of uh, offering them some advice. And to be fair about it, I've tried to get other trail camera companies to build a high-end camera, and nobody wants to do it. It's a race to the bottom. Everybody wants to build the cheapest camera they possibly can, and nobody wants to build a good one. And I finally found someone who's in a business that they're doing some of the same things that are required of a trail camera. You know, they're building their own circuit boards, and just a lot of the other things they've got going fits perfect with a new trail camera. And uh, I'm just kind of directing them what you need in a trail camera. And yeah, they so have, it was an innocent. It was an innocent conversation that started when you saw what they were doing in a different industry and said, you guys ought to consider this. And we've talked about it on the podcast before. We really we. We use Reconyx cameras, but there's just not a lot of competition at the high-end market. And, mm -hmm. you know, having somebody make something in the United States that they support over here that isn't throwaways, that, you know, you're making an investment for, you know, 10 to 12 years with a camera. Yes, they cost a little bit more, but they, they last. There's just not many people in that space. And well, uh, they took it and started running with it. Yeah, and I'm telling you, I put that on the social media, and in the first hour, it had over 20,000 views, and I forget how many shares and comments and all that, but that was just Facebook only. That wasn't the other platforms, but but the goal of this company is they want the very best camera, period, uh, and, and by best, I mean the best trigger uh, speed, the best uh, battery life, the things that... that you know, that I want in a camera and they're, they want to do it. They're not going to do it for a hundred dollars. It's impossible. They're going to have way more than a hundred dollars in the parts, but their goal is to be cheaper than Reconyx. Right now, Reconyx is hands down the best camera. Anybody that wants to argue is nuts. They, they absolutely have no experience with other cameras. Apparently um, you, you put a Reconyx on a post with any other brand of camera, and I promise you the Reconyx is going to get significantly more pictures that the other camera, I don't care what brand it is, is going to miss. I, I've done it with multiple brands. There's no doubt about it. So this new camera, the whole goal is better than Reconyx at a cheaper price than Reconyx. If you're, if you're happy with your $100 cameras, then... I guess you need to stick to them because this this one isn't for you. I set the bar a little bit higher than that for what I demand out of a camera, and and these folks have assured me they have the technology to do it. And I visited this this uh, factory where I took that video. Um, there's uh, more than 50 people working in that factory. I can't give you a number, but I know just from what I saw, there's more than 50 people working in that factory today. They have the technology. And I know that there are former military and former NASA people working in that building. And not long after I was there and filmed that video, the owner of the company sent me a uh, picture of a couple of different brands of trail cameras that they had taken apart to kind of reverse engineer and, you know, see what made them tick. Um, but they're not looking to put out a $100 camera. They're not looking to put out 
a, a yeah. cheap camera whatsoever. It's going to be the best. So uh, even though it got a crazy amount of engagement, even in the first couple hours, just to clarify to everybody, we are not involved in this. It's a friend that is going after it. And we also have a bunch of friends in the trail camera industry. Absolutely. There's some, there's some great guys that we are we call friends, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we've tested cameras for people and just given them feedback. I mean, mm-hmm. we have some really solid, close personal friends. And these guys are just going after a different market segment in the trail camera industry. So mm-hmm. we don't want to make this a dividing thing by any means. Um, nope. you know, there's, there's definitely a market, but everybody in the industry at this point is trying to make a cheap camera as good as they can. This company's going after Reconyx and, and trying to blow them out of the water. So it's going to be really interesting, but don't hear what we're not saying. <laughs> Even though Don said, uh, mm-hmm. we are coming, we're going to bring you more. We're just, it's spreading the word as they come out with it. Right. Yeah, we're kind of on a uh, consulting basis with with this company. And I just want to reiterate what Terry said, that we have friends in the trail camera business. And and to be fair, we have tried, I I definitely have tried my absolute best to get one of these established companies to build a high-end camera. And and nobody wants to do it. They don't think the market's there. Well, we're going to find out if the market's there. Right. So it'll be interesting as we go forward. Um, we got we got some awesome news for our Whitetail Master Academy master class students and also consulting clients. Um, as we were working with Vortex this year and our annual meetings, we're going to be extending a coupon code uh, to those folks who are in those outlets. And I tell you, um, I'm holding up right now a set of rings. And, you know, we have friends that work at, at Vortex, but I call in there quite a bit and just call customer support. I'm building uh, a Savage Impulse right now. I shouldn't say I'm building. I'm putting it together. And the action, if anybody knows the action on these rifles, instead of the bolt coming up vertically and coming back, the bolt rocks back. So the handle just rocks. So you don't have to lift up. You just take your hand off the trigger and then pull straight back. And I've never experienced a, a gun like this where we didn't have to have clearance for the bolt to swing up. So just randomly called Vortex and told them what I had. And in, in seconds, they had a recommendation for what mounts and everything. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm just stoked that we're going to be able to offer a coupon code to all of our uh, customers. And um, we've been using this. You were, I think, actually the first marketing partner when vortex actually came mm-hmm. to the um to the u.s as, as a true player in the hunting industry so we've had a long relationship with these guys yeah i remember the first ata show i don't remember how many years ago 20 maybe that uh vortex was there the opening morning of the show i stopped at the booth i'd never heard of vortex before but uh, was intrigued by their display and I talked to Seamus Terry. Um, Seamus is still with the company today. He's moved on up the ranks. And I'm not sure what his title is today, but uh, he, he remembers me from that very first morning of the very first trade show with, when he was with Vortex and, and been with them ever since. Fantastic people. Um, can't wait to share that uh, code with our consulting clients and our Whitetail Master Academy members. Yep. So even if you're a past customer, you'll have access to this. We'll be distributing around. So if you're in the market for something and you're already on the Whitetail Master Academy, a consulting client, hold off. We'll be we'll be having a uh, coupon to uh, send out to you. Don, let's go ahead while we've kind of uh, on a break. Uh, I'm I'm excited about this hinge cutting thing. We've never done anything like this before. Let's go ahead and do our public uh, speaking uh, slides for the people who haven't been around. Uh, if you want to skip through this, feel free, but we have a lot of people that uh, might have missed it last week. Um, let's just go through this. Unfortunately, I forgot to edit it, so you'll have to start with the second one down because mm-hmm. we've already passed my uh, speaking engagement on the 15th. Well, actually, by the time this comes out, the second one will be over, too. So uh, uh, I'm the one failure. I'm going to talk about is February <laughs> 2nd. Uh, February 2nd, I'm going to be in Hopkinton, Iowa. 
Um, speaking, uh, there's two real world dealers that have gone together to put this event on. Love to see them guys working together. Um, if you, you're interested in that Hopkinton, Iowa event, um, the, the number is 563-608-1579. Give them a call and I'll see you there. And then I want to mention that our friends that are putting on the Whitetail Summit in uh, Wisconsin Dells, uh, Scott Fennendahl, uh, we're, we're going to hope to publish some more uh, kind of specific information. We're going to maybe even possibly try to do a coupon code for that. We're not sure yet, so stay tuned. Make sure you're following Don's social media. This is where most of the stuff in the Real World website where we're going to put that uh, information there. Um, I think this is the dealer summit page. Talk quit about that. Yeah. The dealer summit for real world dealers. I'm telling you, we've had a, just an influx of interest in new dealers and, uh, it doesn't matter if you've been a dealer with us from the day one, 15 years ago, or you're brand new, uh, March 4th and 5th in Arthur, uh, we're going to have a dealer event, uh, call it the dealer summit. Uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland is going to be there with a seminar. Terry and I are going to do a live Chasing Giants podcast with Bingo. And we got to see the new Bingo cards this week. Um, we're going to talk about new <laughs> products, dealer education. We're going to feed you guys some good meals. So uh, look forward to meeting all you folks in person at the Dealer Summit March 4th and 5th in Arthur, Illinois. I saw the words that they're going to play bingo with, so how this is going to work, there's all these cards out there that everybody has, and they're all random, and when they we say a word that's on the bingo card, they're going to you know, stamp it or mark it, and mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I remember saying all the words that are on there, but I think it's hilarious. They got some good ones, Code Brown, Tee It Up, Perspective. Human intrusion. There's just a whole lot of phrases liberal. that are going to be. I think, yeah. I think liberal's on there. Yeah. Pur- <laughs> purple-haired freak is on there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Remote master classes. Uh, I got two of them this year. Um, one in Spencerville, Indiana on March 23rd. One in New Richmond, Wisconsin on April 6th. Uh, you can go to HigginsOutdoors.com for more info, or you can call uh, 217-273-2825 uh, if, if you want to attend one of those classes. Uh, here we go. The Whitetail Management Summits. There's going to be two of them um, this winter, spring. Uh, the first is February 9th and 10th with our distributor in Wisconsin, Extreme Custom Food Plots. Um Scott and Tanya Finnendahl are, are going to have that at uh, Wisconsin Dells at the Kalahari Resort. Um, got Dr. Bronson Strickland and myself, and I think there's a couple other speakers there. If you want to attend that one, um, 920-255-6388. And then March 9th, uh, our uh, distributor out on the East Coast, Eastern Outdoors, is uh, having the same thing at Greenwood, Delaware, and never spoken Delaware before, but uh, have my first opportunity uh, March 9th. Uh, if you want to attend that one, the number is 720-648-0067. These are open to the public. Uh, they're going to have catered meals, multiple speakers, uh, probably some discounts and on real world products or at least you can save your shipping on real world products and and they're going to have more than just real world products there's there's going to be uh, several other products that these distributors carry yep all right um let's let's get on with the show um i just <laughs> i just know you're going to you're going to see a couple of these pictures and so uh, we're going to answer one question first. Again, if you're listening on audio platform, you're going to want to go over to YouTube and watch this. But I think it's the second question we have tonight. I got probably eight, nine pictures of different Google. We just searched Google images and picked a few randomly. But then you're also, when we finish this dialogue, you're going to show a couple pictures of the progression of a specific chunk of woods. You've referenced it on the podcast but you're going to have before, during, and after pictures and kind of show everybody a more visual. One of the pieces of feedback we get from podcast listeners is with it's hard to it's hard to visualize some of the things that we're talking about. So I'm sure that uh, a lot of um, 
a lot of people are going to bounce over to that, but uh, let's let's put the first question up, and I think that comes at after question two. But we'll start with question one and get on with that, okay? So the first question comes from Aaron McGraw from Lucasville, Ohio. Uh, he says, Don, after killing three 200-inch bucks and numerous 170 to 190-inch bucks, do you still get the adrenaline rush after the shot and the kill? I'm not referring to buck fever before the shot. I know with time that is something each hunter can overcome, and I'm glad I have as it's helped me be more efficient with the kill. I killed my first gross-scoring Boone and Crockett buck in 2015, which I watched for four seasons and specifically targeted. That was the last time I felt that rush. Since then, I've harvested two more gross Boone and Crockett bucks, including my largest to date this past season, but have yet to find that rush again. I should note this was a deer on my property for six seasons that I had targeted for two. With that said, I almost feel like I get more excited with finding these deer, doing the land management projects, and seeing them come together, and just all the work leading up to the kill, but then it's almost a sense of relief that I finally get them, especially before a lot of the surrounding hunters who do very little to end up getting them only by luck. I keep setting my goals higher, but this hasn't changed. Most of my kills have been with a firearm, so I intend to up my game next year and go archery only. I'm hoping that's the missing link, but I would still like to hear your thoughts as I feel after a couple big kills with my bow, I'm back to where I am now. Thank you for spreading your faith and reaching us lost deer hunters like me and challenging us to be better Christians, stewards of the land, and just overall people in general. I'll continue to pray for your daughter. Thanks and God bless. Well, Aaron, I understand totally what you're, what you're talking about. Um, for me, it, when I was younger, I'd hear people talk about it's about the hunt. It's not about the kill. And I've, I've changed that a little bit, and I say it's about the chase, not the kill. It, it really is more exciting to find a, a giant, and then as you're trying to put those pieces of the puzzle together, um, how you're going to get him in front of your stand, where, you know, where you're going to hang your stands, um, you know, exactly uh, your plan for, for getting that buck in, in shooting range. All that planning and scheming to me is – the hunt today um slipping an arrow through them is kind of it's exciting don't get me wrong when that buck's coming especially a giant you know my heart rate picks up a little but it's nothing like it was when i started i mean when when you start um you know you can't hardly even control yourself and you mentioned buck fever well i think anybody that hasn't had buck fever um was in the wrong sport um i, I totally get it um, I don't know what the answer is, but I can tell you this, in, anything in life that gets you excited is going to lose its appeal over time. I don't care what it is. Um, it, it can be something innocent like deer hunting or fishing or golf or whatever. It could be, uh, a sport that you're playing, you know, maybe you're one of the best around at whatever sport it is. And, you know, it just drives you to go out and practice and get even better and stay on top of your game. But every one of those things over time loses appeal. Um, lasting um, satisfaction, I guess is the word, only comes through Christ. And the older I get, the more I recognize that I could go out and kill 200 inch. I could kill a world record this coming season. And that euphoria is going to be short-lived. It's only going to last for a certain amount of time. And when you think about it, that that euphoria is only something you experience. Nobody else gets that fired up when you shoot a buck. But, you know, when, when you accept Christ and you recognize um, the impact that you can have on your family for generations to come, that's where true satisfaction comes. And I've lived it. I mean, there was nobody that got on this planet that's ever walked that got more fired up than I have. And that's not saying I'm not saying that to put myself above any other deer hunter. I'm, 
a lot of other deer hunters have experienced, most deer hunters have experienced exactly what I'm talking about. But as you do it over and over and over again, it becomes less of a thrill. And uh, it's not just deer hunting, it's whatever you do in life. So I don't have the answer. I think that uh, you're going to, if you haven't already, it sounds like you, you probably already have, you, you know where, where true satisfaction and, and contentment lies, and it's not with deer. No. All right, well, thanks for the question. All right, so here's here's what we've been talking about. We're going to probably spend a lot of time on this. Don, why don't you read this question and uh, kind of talk about that, and then we'll dive into these examples that we talked to, or we found on the Internet. Uh, so this question comes from Dusty Essick from Highlandville, Missouri. Uh, he says, hey, Don and Terry, thanks so much for your time. I love your podcast and your honesty and appreciate you guys being so willing to share the gospel. I know, and he puts in parentheses, think, you promote cutting trees more so than hinge cutting. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the hack and squirt method. Thanks again for all you do. Um, So for those folks that don't know what the hack and squirt method is, there is a way to kill trees um, called the hack and squirt method where you basically take a hatchet and you, you make a chop in the side of a tree and then you squirt a you have a spray bottle of herbicide that you spray in that cut, and uh, that cut gets that herbicide into the cambium layer of the tree, and it will kill the tree. Um, it, it's way faster and easier than going through the woods with a chainsaw and dropping trees or girdling trees. If you can just go through with a hatchet and smack a tree and then take your spray bottle and, and spray a couple of squirts of the herbicide in that um, that's what the hack and squirt method is. Now you ask what I think about it. I think it's a fantastic tool and probably needs to be used more. Uh, in, in fact, a lot of the hinge cutting projects that people are doing, a hack and squirt would probably be better. Um, just to, to give a little bit further details on that for those who may be thinking about trying it on a small tree, typically one hack and you spray it and you're done. On bigger trees, it might take multiple. You might have to go like three or four times around the tree and uh, make those hacks and squirts to get to kill that tree. Yeah, um, I think there's going to be a time and place for everything, but the guys who can't get a chainsaw in, you know, it's it's definitely a tool. Um, we're gonna ch- we're gonna do this and and try it. Um, full disclosure, everyone. We didn't intentionally pick any photos from certain websites or YouTube personalities. Um, in fact, I think I tried not to just so it wouldn't appear like we were picking on somebody or starting an argument or anything like this. These are just Google images. You search Google images for hinge cutting for deer. And these are just some of the ones that we came up, both a variety. Don wanted a couple examples of in the wintertime and in the green leaf state. So, Don, I'm just going to put these up here, and you can just randomly make some generalized comments about what you see. Well, this first picture, obviously, it's in the, these trees are dormant. You know, the it looks like a fresh uh, cut on, on these trees. Um, I can't tell. It looks like a softwood tree. I don't know if those are cottonwoods. It kind of looks like cottonwoods, young cottonwoods. I don't know that that's what it is, but from the picture... Um, but anyway, these, these trees are cut maybe two feet off the ground and it just, as far as you can see in that picture, (laughs) these trees are just laying on top of each other. And it reminds me a lot of a, a hinge cut I seen on a consulting visit in Ohio a few years ago. Um, they had just laid over these trees, every single tree. I mean, there was nothing left standing. It's like they went into this grove of young trees say uh, three or four inch diameter uh, trunks and they cut them all off about two feet above the ground and they just laid them over and they almost created a carpet of these trees where the trunks are a couple feet off the ground and there's no way that a deer could get through it Um, and and they're so low to the ground they're not going under it either it it looked to me like it was fantastic rabbit habitat but that's about it the rabbits could get under those fallen treetops, but you know, it's just a, another example of someone who had no idea what they were doing when they were hinge cutting. And, um, 
that's one of the things that I have against hinge cutting is most people have no idea what species of tree they're cutting. Um, they, they don't know an oak from a maple, let alone a red oak from a white oak. And they, they really don't know the proper way to go about hinge cutting. Now, I don't think these are, well, they're, they're cut a little bit deep, at least some of them, some of those trees, but they're, they're cut way too close to the ground for one thing. Okay. All right. How about this one? We can't really get a scope of how much is, is cut, but what you see in the picture, talk about it. Well, this looks to me like your typical buck bed, if you will. Um, you know, you've kind of created, uh, they, they've dropped trees. They, they've cut these higher off the ground. It looks like they're probably four feet or so off of the ground. Um, but they, they've piled the, the tops of those trees or leaned them onto each other. And it's almost like there's a room under these trees. It's like a cave. <laughs> yeah, it looks like you could get back in there under this. Um, I even think I see a piece of rope, you know. I, I've seen them where they'll use rope to tie these trees down and into the exact position they want them. Um, I'm not going to say this never works to get a buck to bed under there, but, boy, it's a lot of work and a lot of nonsense. But what this represents to me, and, and it, it, it represents one of the, the big reasons I don't like hinge cuts, because as you can see in this picture, that the trees, the tops of these trees that have been hinge cut are still alive. They're still green. They're still growing. They're still shading the ground. So we've ruined a tree, which if it was a worthless tree, that doesn't bother me whatsoever. But we're not allowing sunlight to hit the ground. We're still shading the ground. That, that tree top is still alive. It's just in a different place than it was. And uh, if a tree is so worthless that I, that it's okay to hinge cut it, why not just get rid of it and start over? Now, I want to say that I do think there's a place for hinge cutting, um, but I think it's way, way, way overused. Just my opinion. Yeah, in this picture, basically, you're you're killing a tree or ruining a tree, and you're even making the, the floor of the forest even more worthless because no shade's coming down. In right. this case, if they would have just cut those trees down, you would have had green undergrowth with still the cover um, versus a cave that goes back in with no undergrowth. All right, how about this one? Because this, this looks like this might be a little bit different application. There's a couple in the background, but um, maybe this is used for directing deer. I don't know. Well, I'm not even sure what to say about this one because of the, the picture doesn't... <laughs> doesn't show a whole lot i mean you can see a lot of trees have been cut off you can yep. see that the sunlight is getting in there in places um i i would just assume i mean you got that big tree in the picture that that's been hinge cut and obviously the top is still alive and you you've got a lot of branches growing upward towards the sunlight uh, you can tell that this tree has been hinge cut uh, at least a, a couple of years probably um, by the, the way that the growth is, is coming out of that hinge cut tree, um, headed towards the sky. Um, I mean, of all yep. the pictures that we've seen so far, this is the one that has the most promise as good deer cover because it's letting sunlight in, in a lot of areas around right. that tree. You know, my first thought at this picture, and I know it's hard for people who are just listening but there's a bunch of tall trees kind of to the left in the background with some hinge cuts in front of it. So if, if this was me and say this was going out into a food plot and this was like a 50 yard wide area going into the food plot and you drop this hinge cut tree over so that the deer walk around the left side towards those other trees in the back closer to your tree mm -hmm. stand on the left side, I think that would be a perfect example for hinge cutting because basically you're just routing that that around by a, a living barricade if you will um yep. you know if, if you tried to pile up brush eventually that brush is going to rot and eventually they'll get through it um mm -hmm. but i don't know what the goal here in this picture is obviously but i was just sitting there thinking man if you had a tree stand over on that left side and those other trees weren't down that could be a really good pinch point if you had access from the back side yep 
I'm I'm gonna wait. I'm just gonna sit back and watch this one. Well, th- this is just an absolute ecological disaster area right here. <laughs> there, there's no other way to put it. I I don't know what these trees are. They're a softwood of some kind, uh, growing fairly heavy. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, those are popple or or what. it's just hard to say from this picture. But anyway, they've just got tree laying on top of tree, laying on top of tree, and uh, you can see the cuts at least. It appears to me that they're low to the ground once again. But uh, th- this mess right here would absolutely do nothing but funnel deer around it. Uh, I-, I can't imagine anything else happening here. Hold predators, probably. <laughs> well, that's true. It'd be a good place for a coyote to crawl up underneath there and raise a den of pups. I was expecting you to go a little crazy on that one. Uh, Maybe I'm it, wrong. It just... I guess I've seen enough of this nonsense over the years that I've kind of, nothing shocks me anymore. Now, now this is a unique um, cut here. All the trees, they're also cut fairly low to the ground, but every tree is pointed the same direction. And to one side of all these trees is open. And this would be a great way to funnel deer movement right here. I mean, you can see that open path along this, all these, these cut trees. It would be a fantastic way to, uh, to funnel deer movement right past a stand or whatever. Um, I don't know that, I think the first tree there looks like a maple, uh, maybe a hard maple. Um, lot, lots of tree, almost every tree is cut, but you could really, uh, direct some deer traffic with this cut. Well, th- this picture here shows a bunch of tree, little small trees that are just inches apart. Every one of them has been cut and laid over the same direction. Um, again, it doesn't look like they're cut very high off the ground. It looks like they've created some fantastic rabbit cover. It looks like a a brush pile for rabbits more than anything. I'm not sure what this is doing for the deer, but again, this picture doesn't, uh, you know, show the whole area around. Maybe if, if we was standing there and could look in every direction, we could understand it a little better. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. It looks like there's six to eight trees that are probably no, the biggest one is maybe six inches in diameter and just all of them very very probably in a hula hoop size circle and all of them just laid over um here you would and i mean we can't see the big picture but here you would say just whack them all off and let the undergrowth take over right that's exactly what i would do all right well this is very similar to two pictures ago where they got the trees leaning in the same direction to direct deer traffic it looks like they're directing deer traffic to a water tank that they've set in the ground for the deer. Um, you know, the biggest thing I don't like about this picture is the fact that that plastic water tank, it, it appears that the only way it's getting water in it is somebody to come in there and fill it. Um, so they, they've created this, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't think they've created bedding cover here. Whatever it is, they created uh, a pinch point, a travel corridor whatever um but to, to get uh, the water tank is is just nothing but a invitation for human intrusion and if if the water tank is the basis for all this cut well that that's just a bunch of nonsense too but you can see how these trees are all leaned the same direction and to funnel those deer traffic right to that water tank Just getting old I, for you? <laughs> no, no, not really. I mean, I, I just don't see anything that I would have done on my property yet. Um, here's another. This looks like uh, uh, the sweet gum trees is what it looks like here. But Absolute worthless it, tree. Yeah, worthless tree. They, they've cut about half a dozen of them leaning over. The tops of those trees are just filled out as green as if that tree was still standing shading the ground under it, cut them stinking things off, and, and let something better grow up. So is this where you would maybe cut that off and then go in with a potted oak tree and put put in behind it with a tube? 
Yeah, we're going to see some of that in the, in the slides that I provided. Yep. This is this is your picture okay. here. Okay. Yep. So this is this woodlot is on my property. Um, this picture was taken about 15 years ago, and this woodlot at that time it's a small woodlot. It's only about five acres. As you can see, there's not a good tree in there as far as species. There's a lot of, uh, well, there's silver maple, there's uh, elm, um, there was locust and hackberry in there, just a bunch of trees that were not much value to, to wildlife or for timber. Well, one winter, my neighbor who owns the adjoining property was having some, some timber uh, harvest uh, done, but had some loggers in harvesting timber, and I... I went to those loggers and I said, hey, while you're here in the neighborhood, see that little five-acre um, woodlot over there? I said, how about going in there and cutting some trees? I said, you take anything you want. I said, you cannot possibly make me mad. If I come back and every single last tree is gone, you're not going to make me mad. Take every tree you want. Well, they did. They took some of these bigger trees. I, it weren't much value. It's, it's pallet woods, what it is. But since they were there so close anyway, they went ahead and did it. And then when they got done, if you go to the next picture, Terry, when they got done, I came in with a friend of mine, and uh, we spent a couple of days with chainsaws. And you can see we just created an absolute mess. And uh, I, was try I wasn't trying to hinge cut. You can see that one tree there. It looks like it's hinge cut. <laughs> that, that's not a hinge cut. That's just let's get these trees on the ground. Some of the bit you see the bigger tree to the left of that picture. You can see how that tree's been girdled. So uh, yeah, right here we either exactly we either uh, we girdled the bigger ones. We dropped a lot of the smaller ones. But what th this picture, that first picture you seen was taken in October, and this picture was taken in February. And there was a lot more done after this picture was taken. It looks like a mess. It doesn't look any better than some of those pictures we just showed. But what I, what we did was once this cut was done, well, before we started to cut, I had picked out a couple of trees for stands along the edge and made sure the loggers left those. There's only two of them. But then we did all this this uh, cut and made it look like a disaster area. Then we came in with, a, with chainsaws and my skid loader and passed those two trees that we left for stands. We created paths into the heart of this mess and uh my friend went ahead i mean he'd cut out sections of the tree trunk and i'd take the skid loader and i'd kick them to the side or whatever and then i i, I created little open pockets uh within this mess and a major trail leading out two different directions past two different trees and then uh, we came back and this picture was taken in february we came back in the spring a couple months later and uh, we brought in a bunch of potted oak trees. And we crawled amongst those treetops with shovels and such. And we planted those oak trees in that mess. Because there wasn't any oaks there for seed to be there. And I wanted to establish some oaks in this woodlot. So if you show the next picture, Terry. This was October again. One year after that first picture. This is what happened with one summer of sunlight getting in there. And in this picture, you can see three oak trees in the tubes. Uh, the one's really obvious right there in the front. And, and then there's two more um, over there to the side. So there's there's three oak trees. I should have sent you another picture, Terry. Today, that, that oak tree that's closest right there is, a, is big enough to hold a tree stand. And I've got a rope scrape on that. And that's where I get some of my best buck pictures is right there on the the rope scrape that's on that little oak tree. Well, today that oak tree's got a trunk that's probably 15-inch diameter or so. And uh, that thicket, the interesting thing is before we did this cut, I'd never had a stand in that little woodlot. There was no need to put a stand there. There's no deer there. Um, the very next winter, just a few months after this picture was taken, um, I came in there, and in a five-acre woodlot, I found eight shed antlers the very first spring. The deer just absolutely crawled in the middle of that mess and were bedding in there like crazy. 
the the path that I made past that tree stand is a fantastic stand to this day. All these years later, the deer are still bedding in there. They're still following the paths that we created. We didn't keep them paths open. We created it one time and then we got out and the deer keep them open today. Uh, all kinds of browses. You can see it's just an absolute jungle and that's just one summer of sunlight coming in and uh, you know hitting the floor in, in that woodlot. I think the, the people that are going to question this are saying, well, that picture right there of your in process looks as big of a mess as what some of those hinge cut messes were. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is there won't be any leaves on this. So it lets that undergrowth come up and this is going to rot away and yep. basically go through its cycle. Having, having a hinge cut that big of a mess, it just creates basically a, a low drop ceiling for lack of better mm -hmm. words that still keeps the floor covered. The other thing is that this picture was taken in the middle of the process. It wasn't at the end of the process. Yeah. I wish I would have taken more pictures, and I wish I would have shown the trails that we created. I wish I would have shown us planting the oaks and creating those open pockets um, because the deer, they would follow that, that trail that we created into the heart of this mess, and, and then they would get off to the side of the trail, and they would bed in these little pockets we created, and today it's it's got those oak trees and it's still got most of this stuff is all rotted away except for some of the bigger trunks um but to this there's, day 15 years or so later the deer still bed in there on a very regular basis the only thing i i want to talk about here before we go to the third question is we can see a good picture the bot the tree in the bottom left hand corner has been girdled and mm -hmm. There's a lot of guys that need to do, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but there's a lot of guys that need to do TSI projects that aren't experienced with a chainsaw. And guys, you can get yourself in trouble really quick in the woods, especially thick woods, dropping trees, getting them hung up, having trees spin out, having trees barber chair. Uh, know your limits with a chainsaw, and if it's a bigger tree that's leaning into another tree, girdling is a fantastic way to safely kill a tree. Um, I mean, there's trees that I won't touch, and I've been cutting wood since I was a kid. Um, or the hatchet method, like you were talking about, uh, squirting herbicide in on top of it. Um, you know, my worry is a lot of times that we talk about things like this, and you can't get yourself in too big a trouble taking a, a tractor out on a flat field and trying to put a food plot in but you can get yourself in trouble really quick in the woods with a chainsaw can't you absolutely and uh, you know one of the best deer hunters i ever knew gabe shaftner was killed um just shortly after he retired such a shame great guy great christian guy that's that killed a lot of giants and he was doing some habitat work and he'd cut a tree and the tree it was an ash tree, and ash trees are known as widowmakers. Um, they'll split and all kinds of things when they're falling, and and it popped up and hit him in the head, killed him right there. His wife came out and found him. Just a just a terrible situation. But and I know of other people that have been killed cutting trees. That's one of the most dangerous things we can do as habitat managers, yep. and, and that's why on these bigger trees. But for one thing, you don't need all that on the ground. I mean, you don't want every giant tree, in, or then you do end up with a mess. Them bigger ones, just girdle them. Girdle them, and it may take them two years to die, but they are going to die. And when they do, the sunlight comes in just as well as if that tree was laying on the ground. Yeah, we're telling people that they need to do this in January and February before green up. We don't know if the top's dead. There's rotten limbs that are going to you know, fall straight down as the trees tip in. So please, please, please be, be careful when in doubt, you know, use a girdle or use a, use your hatchet and, uh, um, herbicide. So mm -hmm. if you like that kind of content, leave a message for us. Um, we want to obviously make this as informative as we can for you. If you like more of the visuals and having Don comment on stuff, we can do supplemental feeding or different other things that way um maybe an aerial every now and then so leave a comment and let us know give us some feedback on that let's move on to the third question okay this one comes from mike kelly from Monee, illinois uh, says hey don and terry great podcast i've listened to every single episode so far several more than once 
since listening my success has noticeably increased in not only seeing but harvesting more mature deer. I know you preach crossbows should only be allowed by the elderly or those who have a disability, and in my opinion, rightfully so. My question is that as you age, there may be a time that you can't draw back a compound anymore, but maybe could climb in a hunting blind. What's it going to be? Join the crossbow club or hang it up? Thanks. Well, Mike, I've made uh, no secret of the fact that I would not hesitate to grab a crossbow if if I'm not able to shoot a compound. I've got nothing uh, against anyone that would do that. I would do it. Um, And I've got really nothing against able-bodied people using a crossbow. I just don't think they should be allowed for able-bodied people during archery season. Uh, You know, a a special shorter crossbow season, use them during gun season, whatever. Yeah, if if crossbow's your thing, you should be able to use it. But I don't think a a three-and-a-half-month-long archery season is the place for an able-bodied person to be using a crossbow. But I want to make it very clear, yes, I absolutely will use a crossbow if the day comes I can't shoot my compound. All right. Next, we have Kyle Mason from Mountain Grove, Missouri. says, hello, Don and Terry. First and foremost, thank you for everything you do for the hunting community. I just discovered the podcast about a month ago, and I've been binge listening relentlessly since then. I can honestly contribute my success to harvesting my biggest buck and only mature target buck left on our farm last week solely to the techniques and tactics I've absorbed from the knowledge and wisdom you share on both the podcast and YouTube channel. My question pertains to DNR. Many folks in my area or state in a whole are frustrated with our laws, particularly the extra extended antlerless seasons, crossbows being legal across the board for anyone to use, CWD management zones, cheap non-resident tags, the list goes on and on. I believe Missouri has the potential to be a better big buck state than our officials allow it to be. Do you have any advice on how to approach these issues, or does it seem to be a trend of falling on deaf ears universally? I know lobbyists and some of the money-hungry Congress people control the majority of this. Just wanted to see if this is a lost cause, or if it's something that could be influenced by the hard-working real-world hunters out there. Sorry for the long-winded question. Thank you again for your time, and keep up the excellent work. Well, Kyle, I I can tell you two things. Um, Deer hunters in every state are disgusted with their DNR. I I don't care what state it is. It it can be the Iowa best state out there. Hunters there are are not happy with their DNR. And on, on one hand... You know, they've got a very tough job. They're they're trying to to they're, they're doing an impossible job. They're trying to appease to a large number of of uh, not really clients, but uh, a, a large number of the public that have differing views. And every single state could do a better job managing for quality deer hunting. Every single state and. The answer, though, you're asking about uh, implementing change, how to go about implementing change. And I can tell you from experience uh, what it will take is an organized effort with a lot of money behind it. Money talks, and if you don't have the money, you're, you're wasting your time. Um, you're going to have to hire a lobbyist. Um, you, you need a big push. And the biggest challenge, in my opinion, is not raising the money. That's going to be hard enough. Don't get me wrong. It's going to be hard enough to raise enough money to push through legislation because you're not going to do it with one bill. You know, you're no. not going to get a comprehensive bill to totally, you know, revamp the game regulations or the deer hunting regulations in your state. It's going to be a years, many years, decades, probably long process of one little step at a time. And each one of those little steps is going to take a bunch of money. But the challenge, as much much money as it's going to take, the challenge is not going to be coming up with the money. The challenge is going to be uniting deer hunters. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're You're going to have an idea 
for a, a regulation change that absolutely, no doubt, would help every single deer hunter in the state, and you're going to have a certain percentage of them that don't want to do anything. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to help whatsoever. They're just a bunch of crybabies that are going to be a hindrance to you because that few percentage are, are going to be the loud minority. It's, it's like what, what's happening with politics in this country today with the woke crowd. They, they don't mm. represent the average American. The average American has got more sense than what these idiots do. And, and But these people are so loud that it makes it seem like there's a whole lot more of them than there really is. So you could have 95% of the deer hunters backing a, a positive regulation change that's going to help everybody, and 5% of the crybabies are, are going to be whining and, and screaming way louder than the 95%, and, and you're going to have to deal with that because anybody that's going to oppose your regulation, say DNR is going to oppose your regulation, they're just going to tell the legislators who are voting on it, hey, listen to these people. They don't want this. And what they're listening to is the 5% of the loudmouth woke crowd that uh, has no idea what they're talking about. I've lived it. I've lived it. It's frustrating as can be. Um, raise a bunch of money and then get some very thick skin. That's as good as Hope. I can. <laughs> That's the best Hopeless. advice I've got. <laughs> Hopeless. Yep. Wayne Geist from Clarks Mills, Pennsylvania says, Hi, Don. My question is regarding consulting. West Elks will be coming to my property later this year. On previous podcasts, I've heard you mention that you return to properties to consult again. What is it that constitutes a second visit? Is this to tweak the previous plan? Um, Wayne, there's a lot of reasons for the second visit. Most of the time, it's because the client bought another property. And, you know, Wes made a, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's uh, just a totally different property. Wes made the comment to me here recently that the interesting thing he's seen is on the repeat clients, their second property is way better than their first. So they've got a property, they hire somebody to come look at it. And once the plan is explained to them and they see what's wrong with their property, then they, they know what to, what look, to look for, for. in a property. Yep. And, the second one is always better. Um, there's been a few times where I've had a client call me back because, uh, you know, they implemented the plan in full that, that I put together maybe two, three years before, maybe longer than that, and they want me to come back and just critique their work and see if there's any other little thing they might be able to do. It, it just varies by client, but I would say the majority of repeat visits are, are to a, a new property that the client's got yep all right last question of the night we'll put it up on the screen here for you so this one comes from blake marcus from germantown illinois it says don and terry do you think if pope and young moved the minimum score of 125 inches to 140 inches for whitetails if it would make a difference in the deer herd across the United States. Um, no, Blake, I don't think it would make a lick of difference. Um, I'm not sure. I, I remember back in the day when I was younger, when that 125-inch Pope and Young minimum was something to strive for. I mean, we're talking uh, the days before trail cameras, uh, the days before crossbows, the days before expandable broadheads, the days before people shooting deer at 60 yards. A lot of people were still using recurves when I started. Um, back then, 120, and there wasn't near as many deer. It's probably the biggest thing was there wasn't near as many deer as there is today. And in the course of a season, you could count on one hand how many people that you knew killed a deer that season. That's how rare it was to shoot a deer. Back in those days, 125 inches meant something. Um it was something to strive for, and I just don't see that today. Even if that was raised to 140 inches, I, I think a 140-inch buck with archery gear today is a pretty easy-to-achieve um, goal for most hunters in most states. It, it, it's not everywhere, I'll grant you that, but throughout the Midwest, that is not a very lofty goal, and 
every one of us knows several people that kill bucks over 140 inches every single year. And uh, I just don't think that Pope and Young raising that is, is going to make have any impact whatsoever on any deer herd anywhere in the country. All right, well, that's right at an hour tonight. You clarified a video that you put on social media on Wednesday night um, about trail cameras, and we did something a little new tonight, and that's critique uh, pictures on the podcast video feed of hinge cutting. So if you want to see more of that, let us know. Um, We'll try to bring and make it as appealing to you guys as what you want. So um, that's all I got. You're getting ready to head to Florida, right? I am. You're going to leave uh, uh, Friday morning for Florida, so we're recording this just a little bit early. But uh, coming back through Kentucky, I've got a consulting visit on the Kentucky-Tennessee uh, line. Um, gentleman that I've known for several years. I'm not going to mention his name because he might not want it mentioned. But uh, I've known him for, for many years through other endeavors. Yeah, I'm going to stop and, and visit with him and consult on a property with him on my way home. And then uh, next week, uh, head to Missouri and Iowa uh, to look at some properties there as well. Yeah, I'm going to be in western Kentucky this weekend, but tomorrow is going to be a special day, Don. Um, I'm not going to mention the gentleman by name. I'll let him do that if he wants to share it. But, you know, we get told that we make a difference in people's lives a lot, uh, not just deer hunting, but I'm going to drive three hours tomorrow afternoon to go baptize one of our listeners who asked me to come up and do it. So I know that there's been a lot of people in his life that have tried to witness to him, and he's he's just done a fantastic job battling some demons and focusing on his wife. And last night on the phone, he told me, I still got something I need to do and asked me if I'd do it. And I said, I'll be there more. So we've, uh, we've, we've found a church that's going to let us use their baptistry and I'm going to drive, uh, three hours up into Eastern Ohio, uh, to go share that moment with him. We're going to have some very special friends of ours. We might even, we might even FaceTime you if you're available. Cause you know, the gentleman I texted yep. you when I told him Austin razor is going to ride up there with me to be a co-pilot. But, um, that's a first for this podcast, and I know that people have said we've made a difference, but I think mm-hmm. it's amazing that the network of deer hunters is doing much more than just uh, critiquing hinge cuts on <laughs> on a YouTube stream. Yeah, uh, I, what we're trying to do with this podcast is, is way bigger than just help people kill big deer, although that's a part of it, and, and with their habitat projects, but... Uh, I, you know, I talked to the, the same gentleman yesterday as well, actually a couple times in the last week. And, uh, have you ever baptized anyone before yeah. this first you have, mm-hmm. well, but yeah, I wish I was closer. I'd be there. So but. It's, 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 uh, it's humbling for us, but it's also a challenge to us that, you know, we got to keep doing what we're doing and we don't, we don't there's a lot of people that don't like what we do and that's fine. We, we get critiqued and that's fine. We we're sorry that sometimes we get a little venom about the negative, but man, what a pick me up for this week that, that, you know, this, this silly platform of uniting uh, deer hunters is also making a difference for a family and a gentleman and eternity. That's, that's, that's a big ROI when you talk about the time and, and money we put into this. Yeah, and you know, uh, I know the this guy's story, the backstory, and you know he didn't grow up in the best situation, but now he's got a little boy, and he's got another little boy on the way. I on think, the way, was it one in July? Is it? The, yep. The, the second one's due, and uh, he's going to make a difference that's going to last for generations. For for those two little boys to grow up in a Christian home versus what this man grew up in. Um, he's changing, I mean, he's breaking generational curses and he's setting future generations of his family on a path. Um, I I mean, it's, it's more than life changing. It's, it's eternity. So now, uh, 
you know, we're going we're gonna to get him baptized, and now the discipleship begins. So the, the job's not over yet. We still have to stand beside our Christian brothers as we fail and we struggle because that's also part of it. We're not, we're not done with just this. It's like a habitat mm-hmm. plan. You go in and draw up the plan, but it's constantly tweaking and working to make it better. That's the same way in our lives, isn't it? If you're not dead, God's not done. I heard that in a sermon a few years ago, and it stuck with me. If you're not dead, God's not done. Well, Don, safe travels, buddy. Enjoy Florida. I can't wait to see Instagram and Facebook pictures of them white legs and white socks. <laughs> you won't be seeing that. But uh, we'll tell God Robin. Bless she, we'll tell Robin she's got a bounty. If she can produce it, we'll find we'll find her uh, something to get her. Yeah, well, <laughs> she's got her work cut out for. Her. Take care, God everybody. Bless Have everyone. a good week. See you next week. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.